0: welcome to the sports info solutions baseball podcast i'm mark simon and i'll be joined by our vp of baseball bobby scales on this episode with black history month ending on tuesday we've got three really good conversations in honor of that subject Four-time Gold Glove Award winner Marquise Grissom stopped by to reminisce about a great catch, and more importantly, talk about passing on the legacy to black baseball players of the future. Tyrone Brooks at MLB joins us. He's the senior director of the front office and field staff diversity pipeline program at Major League Baseball. We'll talk about what he does and how it impacts the baseball community. And children's book author Matt Tavares gives us a history lesson from his book, Henry Aaron's Dream, a book that was recently in the news. We'll explain. Let's get to it. Marquise Grissom is a four-time Gold Glove winner who had more than 2,200 hits and 400 stolen bases in a 17-year major league career in the 1980s through 2000s. In retirement, he runs the Marquise Grissom Baseball Association. He just took teams to the Andre Dawson Classic and HBCU and Youth Tournament in which MLB was prominently involved. This is someone uh, that I really wanted to talk to, uh, someone who definitely represents defensive excellence. All right. We always ask people... To start the show, to take us back to an early catch from their career, but I want to do something specific with you. You caught the fir- the final out of a World Series. There's nothing that's going to be better than that. What's the second best catch, second favorite catch that you ever made?
1: Well, my second favorite catch is probably going to be the uh, final out of Dennis Martinez's perfect game against the LA Dodgers, uh, being in a unique situation where. A couple of innings before that, when Mike Piazza hit a line drive to right center field, I think I got such a great jump on that ball, pretty much running in the right uh, center field gap before the pitch even left in his hand. To me, that was um that was a that was another great play and a great catch that I made. And snow combed the ball, and when I came, flipped over, I uh, snow combed the ball, and I really don't know how I held on to it, but I knew it was going to be a special day because Dennis Martinez was almost like an artist out there drawing a the painting.
0: How how important was anticipation to your catch-making?
1: Well, anticipation and instincts in the Florida game, Dennis was dealing, and uh, he fell behind the Mike Piazza. So I decided, hey, let me shade two steps over to the right center because I'm giving the advantage to Mike Piazza. Dennis was not an overpowering pitcher, and Mike Piazza was a hell of a hitter. So uh, I gave the credit to Mike Piazza, and uh, Dennis made the pitch and put it in the right spot, and I was able to be at the right spot at the right time.
2: Marquis, I want to I ask you about, you touched on defense, obviously, right? And you talked about the anticipation. Where did you learn that? Where did you learn that? And now, how do you teach that to the players that you work with in your, in your academy or just players that you come across in general?
1: Well, Bobby, I think, first of all, I, I learned that just playing in the street, ball in the street with my brothers and sisters in the neighborhood, uh, kids who were very athletic. And uh, you, you try to get those instincts in football, basketball, baseball, which I played all the you know, it's just a, a continuous uh, work ethic that I, I applied once I started playing baseball and in organized ball at seven and had great coaches along the way to, to really sharpen and hone up on the skills uh, at an early age, which I thought was key, you know, really learning the fundamentals at seven, eight, nine, ten eight, nine, 10-year-old. Then, if you're able to pass as the dimensions get bigger, uh, you, can, you can play this game for a long time if you have the fundamentals.
0: What do you teach kids when you teach them defense? Uh, defense, <laughs> defense, how
1: to, how to get a good jump on the ball, how to react, the routes to the ball, uh, movement, knowing, um, you know, when the ball is headed to the plate to the hitting zone, you have to have something moving. And I think you got to see the ball off the bat, got to listen for the sound, you know, at that level, when you're using wood bat and a little bit on what's aluminum bat as well, you know, you just have to be athletic on the baseball field. I think everything on the baseball field is all about athleticism. And we try to get the guys in the best shape possible. First, number one, get in shape. And you don't know what you can do until you get in real good shape. And then apply the fundamentals and and and, and the technique
2: and then control your breathing. So a I, I question. You know, so many more of our kids now don't play all three sports like you did. Like I, I played three sports in high school myself, right? How do you simulate those things? How do you simulate the things that basketball taught you? How do you simulate the things that football taught you? How do you simulate the things that you know, whether it be soccer or whatever. Now, how do you simulate those things when you have a kid that doesn't necessarily play anything else but baseball?
1: Well, I think I think uh, each one have a little bit different characteristics, football, basketball, baseball, track, swimming. You just try to learn those values and those techniques in that sport. And, and, and it, it just in life, you learn these things along the way. They affect you in a way to where if you can remember how to do those things right, on the baseball field, on the football field, on the basketball field, they translate into your play. And I think technique is key for me. That's a big part of my development with all the kids that I'm with now. Technique, controlling your breathing, because of course the anxiety you would kind of kind of get us when we get caught up in the ball three two, high three one, where we the you get on, and we have to make that decision right away. So if if you're in control of that. I think right off the bat, you're becoming a much better player because that's a little bit on the cognitive side of the game too. Whatever. That's something that we don't hone in on enough.
0: You're a mentor to a lot of a lot of people now, uh, and I presume that uh, there were a lot of mentors along the way that helped shape you, whose lessons you are passing down to the kids today. Uh, who were some of your mentors, both baseball and just otherwise?
1: Well, well, first of all, it's, it, it was a neighbor down the street. You know, he was a construction worker. He would come home, working ten hours every day, and he would go up and get the baseball field ready for to play. And he would line the field up. I just thought that was um, an unbelievable spot for me as a kid to see somebody take such uh, responsibility of taking care of the neighborhood and, and giving us an opportunity to play in a safe environment. And then as I go on into, you know, a little bit later on in my career at 15 and 16, it was a great high school coaches. It was was a great low-league coach who, you know, gave me a ride, who picked me up, who taught me the game on and off the field. And then as you go to college and and pro ball, there are definitely a lot of guys that impact me, like Coach Robert Lucas, my college coach. um, Mm -hmm. Bill Lucas, who was the first black general manager of baseball for the Atlanta Braves, he really, you know, dug into me and taught me the game on and off the field and gave me, helped me instill that relentless attitude as a baseball player, what it's going to take to become a big league ball player. And then get an opportunity to meet Hank Aaron as an 18, 19-year-old kid was, was was icing on the cake for me, but he said that I could do it. You know, so those guys, I had so many mentors along the way and got to the big leagues. Tommy Harper was another guy, Leon Lee. Those guys uh, kind of cultivate me and taught me the game um, from a, from a business perspective. And then, of course, all the great players, Eric Davis, Dale Strawberry, all the guys that kind of came before me, Tony Gwynn, Eddie Murray, those guys, you know, when I first got to the big league, those guys came up and introduced themselves to me. And I made an effort to go over there and introduce myself to them and try to get some tips and information on how to be a big league and what it takes to be here for a long time and and how to go about my business. So I was I was kind of wide open and listen, listening, this say much. And so I can learn as much as I can. And all of that helped me along the way. And, and I I can't thank enough people. So what I'm doing today, I almost feel obligated to, to, to go back and do what I'm doing because so many people have impacted my life and my career, and um, that's what this game is all about. It's a beautiful game, and you know, Bob will tell you, I think we got the strongest fraternity in all the sports.
2: Definitely so, and, and I want to I want to touch on a point. You kind of you kind of touched on it, and then you 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 got off of it a little bit, but the mentors you had, and I, I want to speak specifically to Atlanta, Georgia. Now I'm, I'm I was born in Detroit, but moved down to Atlanta when I was a kid. And so I've got I've got pieces of both of those cities that are in me, right? But you you grew up here in Atlanta, um. You know your family's from Atlanta. I mean, we look at what's happening with some of these kids now in Atlanta. You know, we've got Michael. We had, you know, uh, uh, Jason Hayward come through. We've had, you know, we've got Tamar in last year's draft. We've got a number of kids. But talk about the legacy. I mean, you, you touched on a little bit yourself, uh, uh Bill Lucas, Hank Aaron. Um, Ralph Gar, what they, what these guys have meant to the city of Atlanta and the, and the Braves specifically, but, but more so, this, and, in, in this Black History Month, so the, 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 the African American presence in baseball here in this city. Yourself, Lou Collier. I know Alex White's doing big things with minority baseball prospects. I mean, the, the, these guys are doing really good things in the community for, 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 for black and brown kids uh, to be able to play this game. And excel and, and also excel in the classroom. Talk about that piece of the legacy and, and how you play into that and how important that is. Marvin Freeman, one of your ex-teammates in Atlanta too. Don't want to forget him. So talk about that for a little bit.
1: Well, Bobby, I think it, it, it starts with um, Dr. Martin Key, me growing up here in Atlanta, and that combination of paint Aaron and coming to Atlanta, you know, so from Walking. And I was, I was young enough and, and wild enough to understand that Growing up, growing up when I was nine and 10 year old back in the day to be able to and see these people, see those guys and, 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 and see if touch field and touch Hank Aaron, that meant the world to me. And, and Ambassador Young, I'm talking about some very mm-hmm. powerful people who impact my life. I'm talking about to a whole nother level to where right. I, was, I wasn't going to be denied right. on the baseball you know, I, I, a lot of kids don't have that in them. You know, you know, you, you know, you. I almost can't explain it because my mom and dad, when they passed away, was ninety three and ninety seven years old. They been out mm-hmm. for 50, 60, 12 hour days. Then I got Martin King, e, Then I got Bill Lucas. Then I got Robert Lucas as a college coach. All these mm-hmm. people are right here, How people, influential people, who um played a significant role, in 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 Black history, and and. I wasn't going to let them down. I wasn't going to let them down. I went to
2: college in Florida, and then because of Robert Luke, that's that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, and on, and on top of it too, your brother now at, at over at Morehouse,
1: absolutely. And, and then I think if we can give back and pour back, and if if we kind of understand where we come from, we can understand where we're going. And I, I just try to instill the things that I learned in high school, and college, and those people that impacted me, uh, and, and give that information. And that and that, that experience to those guys and to tell them stories. You know, we have to tell more stories about our our experiences so they when they get in that situation, maybe it'll help them down the road. And that's what the mentorship and for me heading forward to these guys, just give them that give those guys those experiences that we had and share them with them because I can't take it with me. The more I give off, the, the more I can learn and receive and grow as a, as an instructor and as a coach and as a parent.
0: You just took a team to the Andre Dawson Classic, um, and you, as you mentioned, went to Florida A&M. Can you speak to the value of an HBCU, both for your baseball experience and and just in general for for your development?
1: Well, well, number one, going to an HBCU, um, I really wanted to understand and get that opportunity to get that experience to go to college. Number two was to be able to play baseball. And have an opportunity to start so I can showcase my talent and skill. Because I had a lot of options to go to be one in football, basketball, and baseball. But baseball was that sport that I I thought I could never conquer. You know, I could not conquer baseball at all. It was the toughest thing ever. And so that was the biggest challenge for me. going And not only getting an opportunity to go to an HBCU where I think I, I thrived the best. Because of the professors that we had that were so engaged in our growth. The coaches that I had. And Robert Lukes and Coach, uh, Robert Durant, and uh, the, the love and the family atmosphere that I felt when I was when I left home, and, and of course uh, a lot of a lot of people that look just like me, and uh, we're all we're all headed in the same direction, trying to get an education and advance ourselves to the next level. So it was it was an unbelievable experience for me to go to an HBCU.
0: I got a player that I want to ask you about. Uh, someone that uh, I mentioned before, but someone that came came through your ranks uh, and just continues the center field legacy in Atlanta. Uh, one of our favorites here, Michael Harris. Um, what's your take on his progression as a major leaguer and how impressive he's looked so far?
1: Well, well, finally, he looked outstanding. You know, he's playing a good brand of baseball. Uh, I'm about to I just like to see him go out there, continue to get better and What a humble kid, a great kid. Come from a great family. Uh, uh, everything has to go to his mom and dad and his sister move on. Uh, you know, he's pretty much the baby. His sister might be the baby, but he's the baby in the family. You know, he he's the one that everybody's going to get on and clown on and, and hold him accountable for everything that goes on in that household. So kudos to his mom and dad and his sister. But um, outstanding player. He's going to be an outstanding player for a long period of time, man. If he just continues to work and grow and learn the game and continue to get better and better. And uh, um, a guy that wants to be in Atlanta – Wanted to be at the Atlanta Braves and getting that opportunity to start in center field, same position that I played. I'm just, I'm so excited for him. And I'm
2: more excited to see, you know, the way he continues to work. That's fantastic. I I just want to commend you. I I really do. Marquise, I want to commend you. I want to commend the work that you're doing uh, in the community, not just on the field. Yeah, on the field is important, but you're using baseball as a vehicle. Uh, to teach these kids about life. And there's a lot, a lot of the kids that come through your program that come through free, you know, work with Fruby, work with Lou and all the other great instructors here in Atlanta. Uh, some of these kids are going to have the opportunity to play college baseball, whether it be at HBCU, whether it be at a, at a, at a PWI, they're going to have the opportunity to get drafted. But all these kids are going to be successful because I know a lot of the things you talk about uh, in your program and in and, and Alex, likewise, and, and all the other guys who are doing great work in our community, it's not just about it's not just about the game. It's about the lessons that you can learn from the game. And, and it's about getting the grades and, and getting an education to where you can do whatever you want to do. And if baseball is, continues to be an option for you, then it so be it. But I just want to commend you and tip my cap to you. Appreciate you. Appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, and and just keep going. And I got to get out to I got to get out to your pl- to your spot, man, and get out to a couple of your events. I, I'm on the other side of town. I got uh, nothing but air and opportunity between us, so I got to get down there and see you.
1: All right, man. Okay, I appreciate you, Bobby. Man, that's good stuff, man. Appreciate you guys,
0: Marquis. Just to wrap up, we got to get asked for a scouting report on your son.
1: Oh, he's doing pretty good. He um, you uh, know, pitched one inning yesterday, I think, and uh, did think you up any hits, no runs. But number one, he's in his shape, lost no weight. And he's excited about being a pro. So I'm looking forward to, to getting down there, watching him play and i uh, see him get better. And then hopefully he'll get a shot, get an opportunity to make it to the top. Cool. A, a pitcher,
2: man, how are you going to let that happen? How'd you let a pitcher happen? Come on now, let's, let's, come on now. <laughs> because I, I was, <laughs> he has to take the legacy on. I thought I was going
1: to be a pitcher as well, but, um, you know, Jerry Manuel threw me in the outfield and said, hey, go out there and try to play center field. So I had to learn how to play the outfield all over again, pretty much. There you, there you go. There
2: go you at, go. That works, too.
0: Go out there, take hits from all the guys you met, Daryl Strawberry, Tony Gwynn, Eric Davis, all those guys. Uh, Marquise Grissom, very thankful to have you on as a guest uh, today. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with your baseball association and moving forward. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate y'all having me.
0: Tyrone Brooks is the senior director, front office, and field staff diversity pipeline program for Major League Baseball. He's also the founder of the Baseball Industry Network, which has more than 40,000 members. He previously worked for the Braves, Pirates, and Guardians in a bunch of prominent roles. Tyrone, thanks for joining us. No, I'm glad
3: to be here, Mark. Really looking forward to being here with you and Bobby.
2: Tyrone, glad to have you, my friend.
3: Nah, Bobby, always a pleasure to be around uh, you. a good chance to chat with you. So
2: we, I'm gonna have a problem with you because you've been to my city twice and I haven't seen you. But that's all right. We're gonna look past it this time. We'll get. We'll <laughs> I literally the same have a couple
3: hours. That's all I didn't have.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Don't uh, give me the passing through the airport thing. I'm okay. not having it. <laughs> Tyrone, appreciate you being on with us today. We're on the backside of Black History Month, and one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is we we you know just in reading your bio and the things that you've done. Obviously, you're a champion for change. You're a champion for change inside of, of, of Major League Baseball and specifically in, as far as the diversity pipeline. Explain to us what that is and how you feel like that's going to change the landscape of, of front offices across uh, Major League Baseball.
3: No, thanks, Bobby. It's it's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm really a lot of this really kind of evolves back to my own background and my own initial start. You know, growing up, I loved the game of baseball as a kid. My, my first game. Was at five years old when I went to Memorial Stadium, and one of the memories I have at that time, which I, I hope more of our kids fully can have that same type of experience, is when you see players on the field that look like you mm. has a way of having that connection. And for me, that was the case of seeing players like Eddie Murray and Al Bumry, Ken Singleton, you know, players that looked like me to help me identify. And Eddie Murray ended up being my my favorite player still is my favorite player of all time thanks to that that first initial opportunity and you know for me that was that was almost like my first lesson about related to diversity and seeing that with those players on the field and that's one thing that our our baseball and softball development department which uh, is led by Tony Regans and also Dell Matthews what they're trying to do is make sure we're helping to have them building that pipeline to especially get more kids playing the game. But when it when it comes back to it, it's having that opportunity, you know, having the opportunity, not one, understanding that there can be truly be a career for you in baseball outside of playing. Not everyone's gonna have your ability, Bobby Scales, and have what you were able to do and play in the big leagues, to have that type of uh, you know, where you were able to obviously go play at the Michigan and, and then have your chance to go play professionally and then transition into the game. But it's like what we're trying to make sure that individuals can understand. And You can take those experiences you've had as a player, or even if you haven't had the experiences as a player, you can take those and you can be a fan of the game and have an opportunity to have a fully a career. I just happened to, I was in my late in in my college career, I had worked as a photographer in college covering pretty much every sport at the University of Maryland. And I just happened to be in my, going into my last semester and I haven't found a book. Called the Internship Bible, and uh, hopefully I'm not. Maybe I'm plugging it, but I just happened to see it, and they're in. Still, it's like in its tenth or eleventh edition, still exists. And when I saw the Internship Bible, it had a small section on sports teams, and it just happened to have information about the Atlanta Braves having an internship program that was developed by Hank Aaron, uh, the Hall of Famer and legend, Stan Caston, who was at that time uh, the uh, president of the Braves and now the present CEO of the Dodgers. And also Ruby Lucas, who was the widow of the late Bill Lucas. So I just happened to see that and it was all of a sudden I saw something that was maybe a possibility. And that that was all I was looking for to start with. And once I went ahead and applied and got the opportunity, got the call, you know, literally a month before I graduated, I got the, the call to get started in the game. And then I just ran with it. But it was just something where now we have this opportunity. I'm I'm getting a chance to pay it forward. And thanks to all the wisdom and others that shared and put and pour their energy and time into me, you know, now I get that chance to try to hopefully make a difference in getting folks started and getting an opportunity, you know, with the focus on, on helping people of color and women to get a start in baseball operations. In many cases, it's just building that awareness that then let people know, Hey, this is something I can do when, whether I want to work in the front office to hopefully be on that pathway to learning more about contracts or analytics or Want to do something and become a scout, become a coach. All these different options are all of it. If you have an experience with understanding programming or engineering, there's so much things that are out there for somebody. And also just trying to let people know, even, even if it's outside the diversity pipeline program, if you have a skill, understanding, or something you're interested in, whether it's accounting, finance, sales, marketing, or helping to continue to build baseball, softball in the community, there's a this is a there's a place for you you know with our 30 major league clubs, all of the minor league teams across the country, and in addition to our office of the commissioner. So it's just like trying to lay that foundation for folks and knowing a big part of really with this program is just laying. Hey, there's all different ways you can get in, whether it's through an internship, through a, a trainee program, or a fellowship, including our MLB Diversity Fellowship Program. All different ways that you can get started and get yourself in the door and it just. Once you get in the door, then it's a matter of what you can kind of make it, make of it from there with the goal that we're going to help support you. And, you know, when I'm talking to candidates, I'm truly trying to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm here for the journey to help you. I've been on this journey myself, but I want to make sure you have the resources you need to be successful moving forward. Even going before they even get into the actual process, looking at their resume, giving feedback on that, because that's, that's a starting point. You know, I want to make sure that they have, they're going to be able to put their best foot forward in any process they go in through and then also making sure that they know what things they're what challenges they may face going forward with the idea that hey it's obviously it's not maybe not for everybody but here's an opportunity to do something hopefully that you'd love and have an opportunity to do it each and every day
0: so how is your career path instructive for others beyond getting that first job? Like once you were within baseball and you moved from one team to another, is there like a defining moment? Is there something that you could pinpoint that is something that is a good kind of like teaching point for a younger person?
3: Yeah, I think one one thing that really for me that was important, one, it was I, I had really good mentors along the way, especially when I first got in the door that were very willing to share. One thing during that time period, front offices were a lot smaller. So you were able to have and build those relationships very easily with folks, but also just having an outpouring of people that were willing to spend time with me, whether it was Paul Snyder, legendary scouting director, or Dayton Moore had just came in our office in Atlanta during that time, learning from him and also having people that I started to meet in other teams early in my career too, who were willing to share knowledge. And and with that, it was something where, Even as I continued to make my way in and started to continue to grow, I also understood I felt a certain obligation to try to reach back and help other people. And that's where when I created the Baseball Industry Network back in 2009, the time I was working for Cleveland, and I just started when I would look around, I would remember I would always get people asking me questions about, hey, how did you get in? How did you break in? And, And I was very fortunate. I didn't have any roadblocks when I first got in. It was just a somehow it just naturally just happened where I got very lucky, right place, right time. And the time when I got hired full time, my, my internship was supposed to only be for three months. And I got hired in a month and a half, thanks to being in the right place, right time. One of our staff members left. And then out here I was in the door as a full time employee. You know, but what I wanted to do, hey, what can I do to try to make sure I'm reaching back to help others? Because one, I could see them. When I created a network, it was one I saw they were baseball people on LinkedIn, but they were literally just scattered everywhere. So I just wanted to make sure. Bring create a place that would be, I felt like a safe place that would bring people together with the opportunity to share knowledge and help those that are really enthusiastic about trying to have a career in the game. And also have those who have already taken those steps have them also be willing to be, you know, be able to share and connect with others, knowing, hey, I've been in those same shoes and I want to see if I can help you as well. So, you know, that is something that really has just fully resonated with me throughout.
2: So, describe, you, you described kind of your, 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 the calling as to why mm-hmm. you ended up in the seat you're in. Obviously, you know, you, you were with a number of clubs. You were with Pittsburgh when you, when you took this role with MLB. And you're on your pathway, man. You're on, you're, on, you're, you're on your way in that Neil Huntington regime. You know, you had uh, significant responsibilities within that player personnel department, tremendous scout, worked your way up, did the hard work with several different clubs. You're on a GM path, man. What was the impetus? I mean, when, when this opportunity was presented mm-hmm. to you with Major League Baseball, you know, you're on a GM path. You're on a path to sit in the corner office that many of us who got in the game, myself included, wanted to have that job. But this was more this felt to me. And I'm and I'm, I'm asking, I guess mm-hmm. it seems to me you chose something that seemed more important in the grander scale. Talk Talk to us about that and then talk to us about what that looks like right now you know anybody who follows tyrone brooks on social media you know where he is and what he's doing he's everywhere he's doing all kinds of cool stuff with a lot of really cool young people but walk us through what a day a week in the life of tyrone Brooks looks like as you try to you know make sure that people have awareness of what they can be and then more importantly baseball front offices know that there's talented people out there
3: yeah bobby when it when it really kind of came about i mean back in the fall of 2015 it was like, all of a sudden, the culmination of things I've been you know, dreaming for, having that chance to hopefully get in that seat to become a GM. At the time, it's kind of a funny story. I was in Japan at the moment. I was At the time, I was scouting players over there right in basically in like late August going into early September. And all of a sudden, I got the call from Neil Huntington saying, hey, the, the Milwaukee Brewers want to talk to you about becoming their GM They go through the interview process. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, you know, your head is like spinning. Like, oh, man, wow, this is... That moment I've been sort of dreaming of and made a 13-hour flight back to the States and was trying to get myself kind of ready and prepared. And it's obviously thinking about things that you've been experiencing throughout your whole entire career. Now, it's just a matter of having to be able to be able to clearly display that and just just really express your passion, your vision for how you would build an organization. So I ended up meeting with the Brewers, met with their owner, Mark Antanasio, and a group of folks out in California. Went through it, process, and enjoyed it. I learned a ton from it. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, but Mark Antonasio talked to Rob Manfred, commissioner of baseball, and at the time, they were looking at trying to build a diversity pipeline program. And with that, I was initially asked about being on an advisory board, which we st- we have today, that basically helps to me as we're planning for things that we're trying to do. And I was definitely on board with the idea of trying to help from that perspective. But then I just started once I found out they were actually looking for somebody to run the day to day of the program, and that really just piqued my curiosity because of I had already been informally helping folks through the baseball industry network, and here was a case where I just thought, you know, Hank Aaron and so many others poured so much time and energy into me, and here maybe here's a chance to help grow the game even further on a bigger scale in addition to what I was doing already, and that's where I, I just really felt like something that was just right for me at that time. And, you know, even when I talked to Daniel Neil Huntington, you know, we had great talks when I was trying to, to figure out what I wanted to do as far as that next step. And and he told me a lot, Hey, this will probably never prohibit. This won't prohibit you from continuing to grow. If you want to take that step front office wise, you know, but I just felt also there was a lot to possibly learn being in the commissioner's office too, being around a lot of great people there. I just felt there was a lot to offer from the experience in addition to something I was already passionate about as far as helping people. And and, and that was the, the main main reason why I felt it was such a good move at the time. I did have a chance to go through the process again a few years later with the Baltimore Orioles, and thankful to the Angelus family, them giving me an opportunity to talk and get in front of them back in the fall of 18. Unfortunately, it, it didn't work out, but it was something I, I won. I was even better prepared, I felt, going into that process versus the first time. and now i felt i had a better opportunity to sell myself you know as far as as people go through a process talking to folks especially for an opportunity i, I had like about a 40 50 page deck that i put together which i didn't have the first time and then had that that we went through you know, probably 3 quarters of it together and just uh, felt hey here was a chance to really showcase my vision fully unfortunately it didn't work but man i i just love what i'm doing each and every day and that's where seeing folks getting a chance to connect with individuals and that's when you when you get that phone call or that text or email saying they got a, an opportunity to get started you know that's where it's all about it's, it's getting on that journey starting that journey and understanding and I try to explain to folks it's about it's about a marathon it's not a sprint you know and understanding find your your place where you fit in this game and then also just continue to develop and grow along the way and then with the idea and I, I tell folks, if it's if it's about like pure money, then you can make a lot more money in other industries to start with. But if it's about doing something that you're gonna feel fulfilled dealing with each and every day, where it doesn't really truly feel like work, that's what baseball has to provide, has an opportunity to provide for somebody. And that's done that's done great for me and, and being able to do that. So I, I get a chance each and every day, getting a chance to connect with different individuals, trying to assist them especially when we get into our leading into our our main hiring season of the year, which is typically in the fall, but really trying to, and then even right now during this time of the year, we're still trying to, I'm trying to build some and plant some seeds for talking to talent, helping them understand further what a career looks like. And I feel like there's a lot of places that right now, we're trying to see if we can do a better job of getting in front of, whether at historically black colleges and universities, mm-hmm. making sure that they know, hey, there's a pathway for you. There's a career for you. You may not be thinking about it, and I know many people, are, especially baseball-wise, are probably are really focused on, hey, I want to play at the next level, but we want to make sure we can plant that seed with somebody. And I can I give you a great example. Back a few years back, I had a chance during this past weekend, I was at the Andre Dawson Classic, which uh, MLB puts together. A great event takes place in New Orleans at the New Orleans Youth Academy. And going back several years ago, I was there speaking to the teams that are participating one of the teams is Grambling State University. And one of the individuals I had a really good chance to talk with was a kid by the name of Jalen Heath, who was a that time was a first baseman for them. And we had a chance to connect and really, and I stayed engaged with them. He applied for what our what's called our MLB Diversity Fellowship later. And that is a you know a full-time postgraduate opportunity back. So he was applying for our class of 2020. And unfortunately, he went through the process but didn't get hired at that moment. But I stayed stayed engaged with them. And he actually went into a a full time role as an accountant in Houston, and we stayed engaged. And I said, "Hey, here's an opportunity, maybe for you to stay involved doing something." So connecting with our data operations department, he ended up doing a season long, seasonal role there, helping out with as a data stringer. And he did that all of the fall of twenty, all throughout the twenty one season. And then there in the fall of twenty one, he applied for our fellowship program. And then when I showed up at the in New Orleans for the Andre Dawson Classic in 22, the day that I showed up there to speak to the teams was the day he accepted his fellowship offer from the Pittsburgh Pirates to get started with his career. And, you know, that, that's what, it, that's what, it, that's what it, that's what it's about. You know, I, that seed was planted with him, stayed so engaged with them. And now here's his chance now to be involved working in our game. And he was a tremendous kid and he's a tremendous kid. He was, he was a valedictorian of his class there at
2: Grambling state. So just something that the see was just pretty incredible. Tyrone, we we got issues, and I'm gonna tell you why we got issues. <laughs> you got a young man that's a data guy that played, mm-hmm. and we didn't get dibs on him here at Sports Info Solutions. <laughs> I got, I got, I got, I got a problem. You know, I I need, I need to be one of these calls. I mean, how can I get into the preferred rolodex, sir?
0: All right. To close, we should mention all the different ways that people can get in touch with you. But we should also mention that both you and our group are very actively involved in the Sabre Analytics Conference, March 10th through 12th, both virtually and in Phoenix, Arizona. It's something that I know that you have brought a lot of people to those conferences in the past, both live and virtually. Just explain to us what people can do and how they might be able to find you on the various social channels that we brought up.
3: No, thanks, Mark. Yeah, definitely. We we've enjoyed having a great partnership with Saber. Going back, this upcoming will be our seventh year working in partnership with them, getting an opportunity to help you know those that are in many cases are underrepresented throughout our game, women, people of color, getting them into understanding further about analytics and how it's being used throughout our game, and, and getting that experience to understand and have that feel for the conference. You know, this year we'll have a chance with being returning back to in person and also the virtual component, which has been around the last couple of years, this is just a great opportunity for us to help talent get that exposure, understand further, but also that chance to potentially build some networking relations and relationships with people as well. So we're excited to work together with them. We're going to have a group of approximately maybe close to 100 that will have a chance to experience the conference. We'll have a a good chunk, about a little over 30, that will be in person. And then we're going to also, we still have some room available for those to potentially uh, get a chance to experience the conference virtually. And and with that, it's something that, you know, just getting that feel and understanding, but also getting a chance we'll connect some different professional clubs that are going to be a part of it as well. They're going to set up some individual sessions with individuals in addition to those that are going to be in person. So we're trying to make sure that there's a lot of options for those both virtually and in person to start building those relationships uh, and also making sure that the information for their, their resumes and all that are shared throughout the league as well as an opportunity. So it's, it's something that, you know, thankfully Scott Bush and Scott Carter there at Sabre have been great partners with us. Those that want to, that are in, still interested, they can definitely reach out to me on uh, on LinkedIn LinkedIn's a great way to get a hold of me and also through the Baseball Industry Network as well. But also just uh, on, you can also look me up on social media as far as uh, within Instagram and also within Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is uh, T Brooks B I N. And also on uh, Instagram, you can find me at TyBrooks412. So definitely looking forward to, I, I love also being able to share the journey that we're on right now and being able to show the places and the people that we're talking to. And You'll also see links for the diversity pipeline program also on there. So glad to see if we can assist somebody who may be thinking about next steps as far as a career in baseball.
0: One of the most important people that you can make contact with in baseball if you hope to pursue a career in the industry, whatever field you're in, Tyrone Brooks. Thank you for taking the time to join us.
2: Tyrone, appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you being on, man. Keep doing brown. The good work you do.
0: Thank you so
3: much. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck to you. Good luck this spring and uh, look forward to staying in touch.
0: I'm joined by Matt Tavares. Matt is a children's book illustrator and author who loves baseball. He's produced books about Babe Ruth, Pedro Martinez, Ted Williams, and Hank Aaron, among others. The stories are about themes like determination and overcoming and are beautifully illustrated. The Aaron book came out in 2010, was in the news recently because it was pulled off bookshelves in Duval County, Florida to comply with newly enacted local laws regarding the teaching of racism to public school students. It was subjected to further review along with books about Roberto Clemente and baseball played at Japanese internment camps during World War II. So everyone knows with Sidemon, that's ridiculous. The good news, though, is that the review is complete, And the books were eventually approved, though we don't know that students have fully accessed them yet. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us.
4: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: So just tell us a little bit more about yourself, your baseball interests, and what you do.
4: I've been making children's books for about 25 years now. My first book was my senior project in college. It was called Zachary's Ball. It was about a boy who goes to his first Boston Red Sox baseball game and catches a foul ball or his dad catches it and hands it to him. That was something I had always dreamed of as a kid. So, yeah, I've been making baseball books for a long time. I, I started out with some fiction stories, and then I did a few of these biographies, I moved on to some different stuff now. But baseball is just something something that I've always loved, one of those few things that has been a part of my life from the time I was a little kid straight through right now. Red Sox fan? Yes. <laughs> yep. Based in Maine, right, right? Right outside of Boston. I live in Maine now, but we're still in still in Red Sox nation.
0: So, why did you decide to write a children's book about Hank Aaron?
4: Mostly because I had been—I've always loved reading about baseball and the history of baseball—and I read his autobiography, "I Had a Hammer," which is a really good book. I mean, as far as like a lot of times, autobiographies written by athletes are kind of fun to read, but there are a lot of stories of maybe bragging about this or that in the old days. And uh, but his book was just a really thought-provoking, good book, and I realized when I read that. I never really knew much about his early years. Like most of what I knew about Hank Aaron was about him chasing Babe Ruth's home run record and and sort of what he went through during that. But just reading about what it took for him to go from his childhood, you know, growing up in Mobile, Alabama in the 1930s and 1940s where he wasn't allowed to even play on the fields in his town, going from that just to make it to the big leagues, it was such an amazing story so I felt like I wanted to make a book for kids about that specifically
0: and certainly an appropriate topic of discussion black history month also something that a lot of people don't know about hank aaron was that he was a great defensive outfielder since we talk so much about defense on the show in addition to being the home run king won the gold glove in 1958 59 and 60 and i understand there are some pictures uh, related to hank aaron and defense in the book right
4: yes there's there's one of him playing second base Neat. that's something i didn't realize you know when he was in the minors he started out as an infielder
0: one of the highlights of the book is the story of Hank Aaron's, how Hank Aaron's career began. Let's let's do one storytelling here. You just tell us how that happened.
4: All right. So in every book I read about Hank Aaron when I was working on this book, there's this great story of how he got his first shot at playing for the big league team in, in spring training. And it was uh, spring training, 1954, I believe. It's been a while. And he was sort of on the minor league team. But as the story goes, one day, Bobby Thompson on on March 13th, Bobby Thompson broke his ankle. And then because of that, the next day, Henry Aaron got to the park and found out he's in the starting lineup for the Braves for the big league team against the Red Sox on March 14th. And supposedly he hit a home run in this game. And just the sound of the bat hitting the ball was so amazing and unique and, and spectacular that the great Ted Williams, who was not even in the game anymore, came running out from the clubhouse and said, who hit that ball? Because he knew whoever hit that ball was somebody special. And it was this minor league named Hank Aaron. Awesome story. So I included that in my book. Um, my editor had the idea, let's show him seeing his name in the lineup for the first time. So in order to, to draw that, I needed to know the lineups. So I looked through, like on a newspaper archive, I found like a Milwaukee newspaper that covered the Braves in spring training in 1954. I get March 13th. I see Bobby Thompson breaks his ankle. All right, perfect. Just have to check the box score from the next day. But it turns out the next day, the Braves did not play the Red Sox. They were both in different cities playing different teams. I checked all my books. I'm like, no, it says March 14th. It's on timelines of Henry Aaron's life. That's the day it happened. But they didn't play each other that day. So I looked through all of spring training. Finally, I found a game on March 10th. Braves play the Red Sox. Henry Aaron's leading off, playing left field, I think. Um, he hits a home run. So that was the game. But Bobby Thompson hadn't broken his ankle yet. So so all this time I had read like, oh, that was his, like you said, it was his big break. He had earned his way into the starting lineup before Bobby Thompson broke his ankle. And then I also noticed, I looked through the Red Sox lineup, there was no Ted Williams. <laughs> um, so I'm like, well, where the heck is Ted Williams? It turns out he broke his collarbone a few days before this. And he had surgery in Boston on March 9th. So there's no way he was even at that Game. So it's, it's one of those stories that I think, like, sometimes when you're going through baseball history, old, old ball players tell tales and maybe they grow over the years. And Ted Williams probably years later remembered, thought he remembered some kid hitting a home run and hearing the sound. And he probably made up the story and told reporters. He probably thought it was real. I don't know. But, but yeah, you mentioned Howard Bryant's book. That's the first book I've read that actually tells that story the way it actually happened. But when my book came out, that book wasn't out yet. So I did. On that page, I tried to tell exactly the way it really did happen.
0: So we're we're trying to be socially conscientious on this show, and the story kind of caught our eye. And from what I understand, there have been a few reactions to this book, which came out in 2010. One is certainly from the people who love it and... I think for good reason because it's, it's it's a very impressive as are some of your other works that I've looked at. Another is a more nuanced one and you made a change in the past to reflect that. You didn't shy away from the racism that Aaron dealt with. It happened and it's there in the book for everyone to see. There was a reference to what fans said when they taunted black players. You originally included the N-word and you then spoke to some concerned and parents and educators. You noted that they weren't like what's going on now is a little bit of a different conversation. You revised the book, you removed the the slur, and can you explain what you did and why you did
4: it? Like when when we were first making the book, I mean, it was my first nonfiction book, I was really focused on getting the history right and telling the true, honest story of what really happened. I was so concerned about not wanting to sugarcoat what really happened and make it seem softer and gentler than than what the history really was. So in researching his story, that word was everywhere. It was something he dealt with every single day. You know, when he was breaking the color barrier in the South Atlantic League in 1953, he had legitimate reason to fear for his life every day, just going out on the field. So when I first wrote the story, that word felt like it was a it was a horrible but but real part of the story. I imagined the book being for older kids and I, I honestly, looking back, I don't think I thought enough about who the audience would be and where a book ends up. Like it, it it's a book that, you know, if someone's buying a birthday gift for a five-year-old, they might see, oh look, it's a baseball book. Little Billy loves baseball, um, not expecting to see that word in it. So I, I kind of realized pretty quickly like that was I mean, looking back, it's the biggest mistake I've made in my career. Like it, it almost sounds ridiculous now, like how did you ever put the N-word in a children's book? But at the time it felt like I I just wanted to tell the truth. And I figured the book would find Find its appropriate audience, but that's not really how it works. Once a book is out in the world, you never know if, if an unsuspecting librarian is going to read it to a bunch of preschoolers and then find herself in a position she didn't expect to be in. And that's not what I intended. You know, I just wanted to honor this, this story and this history. So yeah, I asked my editor if, if in, in future printings, we could replace that word with just, just saying they called him terrible names, which is obviously what I should have done in the first place, but but yeah, that was back in 2015 that that edition came out. So with this new controversy with Duval County, I mean, there's a chance they had the old, they had the like those, those original editions are still kicking around. Um, they still are, there are still books out there, but I think they had the new version. I don't think the word was the issue.
0: Yep, and I was going to ask what your reaction was to what happened in Duval County, Florida.
4: Yeah, I mean, I first found out about it. My first thought was that, I I thought it might be because part of my story takes place in Jacksonville. You know, when when Henry Aaron and three of his teammates broke the color barrier in the South Atlantic League playing for Jacksonville, uh, the Braves minor league team in 1953, that's Duval County. So I thought maybe they took specific, you know, maybe they had an objection to that, to their kids reading about what happened right in their hometown. But then I saw other books on the list. I mean, there's the Roberto Clemente book you mentioned. There are other books that there's a book by my friend Grace Lin, it's called Dim Sum for Everyone. And it's about a Chinese family going out for dinner and just eating, eating dim sum. And there's nothing, there's nothing objectionable about it. So yeah, it was more just, you know, it seems like just a stupid political thing that is happening in Florida. And it seems like between the governor coming up with these new laws, and then I think part of it might be the county sort of following the law to the letter, maybe even to prove how ridiculous it is, you know, to actually have to go through, I've heard it's like a million books or something that they have between their whole district, that librarians are supposed to individually go through and make sure they they comply with these new rules, which are like, who knows exactly what is breaking the rules, because it's, there's something about like, they're not allowed to share books that might make students feel guilty based on their race. So it's like, okay, what does that include? Is that anything about the civil rights movement or slavery? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in our country that I guess if you're if you're someone who's going to feel guilty about your race, maybe those would cover that those subjects. But yeah, it's hard to it's hard to make sense of it, I guess.
0: Uh, Yeah, we know this is the first time in a hundred. hundred-something episodes that we've touched anything close to political on this podcast, but I felt obligated to bring it up because it was baseball, it was Black History Month, and it was something that I felt was appropriate to talk about. Uh, You've written these other baseball books that I mentioned. Can you just briefly tell us about those?
4: Yeah, I've done uh, four of these baseball biographies. I did There Goes Ted Williams, Becoming Babe Ruth, and Growing Up Pedro about Pedro Martinez. And then I did I did a, a few fiction books before that. I, I really love doing the biographies. I've love I love learning about the history of baseball. And probably the most fun was the Pedro book because that's the one player I wrote about who I actually got to watch pitch. I was just thinking back to it was so much fun to be at Fenway when Pedro was pitching. The whole place just was electric, and it was it was interesting to you know learn about him as much as I could and learn what his childhood was like. And like that story kind of focuses on him and Ramon, his brother. And how they pursued their this shared dream of making it to the big leagues together, and uh, how they how they made that happen.
0: Awesome! And uh, can we recommend that you do? A, a, and I was thinking of a defense book that you could do. Could you do an Ozzy Smith biography next?
4: Oh yeah, I always loved watching him.
0: <laughs> yep, and yeah. he's he's certainly very picture friendly, right? With the backflips yeah. and all the flips those flips and everything.
4: Yep. yep, yep.
0: Awesome! And and just tell us about your most recent book that's uh, that's coming out.
4: I have my first graphic novel uh, is coming out in March. It's called Hoops. And it is a story about a girls' high school basketball team in the 1970s. And your books are appropriate for ages? I mean, the baseball biographies are sort of, they're picture books, but they're longer than your typical little kid picture books. So maybe not like the Very Hungry Caterpillar level, but I think of them for more to like first through maybe fourth or fifth grade. Graphic novel is sort of a longer format book. I think of that middle grade, like third grade and up. But yeah, most of them are, are somewhere in that elementary range.
0: You can find Matt, Matt's books at Amazon, wherever books are sold. You can find the Henry Aaron book on YouTube, as a matter of fact, someone reading it aloud. Is there anything else that people can do to be supportive to your work?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, my website's TavarisBooks.com and I'm, I'm at tavarisbooks Books on most social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And Hoops is available for pre-order now. So that's the one I'm going to be out promoting soon.
0: The book is Henry Aaron's Dream by Matt Tavares. I would certainly recommend reading it. Black History Month, great way to teach young people about the history of baseball, which we always like to promote here on the show. Matt, thanks for joining us. All right. So to close the show, I did want to do one question about something that's been in front of mind recently, because it's, it deals with something that we track here at Sports Info Solutions. We track sliding, diving, and jumping catches. And during last season, Mike Cameron commented about a stat that we put out about Julio Rodriguez and diving catches. And Xander Bogarts has spoken publicly to the San Diego media about how he's going to approach diving this season and i'm looking into riley green as we essentially as we speak looking into riley green and his having a large number of diving catches last season and wondering about how that impacts him and i'm curious with spring training is it possible to kind of like have a new plan for a season for a player like that where they don't necessarily tax their body or is it a case of kind of like once you get in games that that stuff's kind of forgotten
2: I, th- I think I think there's a nobility in in wanting to do what's right for the player's career, and you know, you know, the, in the NFL, they call you know when a guy doesn't make a tackle or he makes a half-hearted effort at a tackle, they call it making a business decision. But you t- guys like Xander Bogarts don't become guys like Xander Bogarts by making business decisions. He's gonna go do what he does, and if he feels like he can get to the ball, he can die for it, he's gonna do it. That's what ends up happening. I know. I'll say this when I was running, you know, field coordinator in the minor leagues, and I was also a base run, outfield base running instructor. We would tell guys not to dive at home plate for the obvious reasons. Diving, you know, sliding head first in the home plate is, is it, there's so much that can go wrong. But at the end of the day, it's it's a 2 1 ball game, and this guy's coming around third base in Indianapolis. and. And and he thinks he can win the game. These guys are wired to compete, man. He's gonna slide if you think he, he if he thinks he can get that right hand in or that left hand in there, on the backside of the plate, the catcher's up the line a little bit. He can get that that left hand in there by diving at first. He's gonna do it. And so it's one of those it's one of those slippery slopes. If you take that away from a guy, you, or you make a pointed effort to do that, are you taking away a piece of who he is? And so that you have to walk that fine line of of asking a guy not to dive. So that he can, so that you know he can preserve his body. I know th- th- there's a lot of talk out there with with Buxton. I know there had been some talk earlier in the year about not letting him play center field for the simple fact that he's just going to go wide open. But how are you going to tell that guy not to be go go be Byron Buxton and play center field the way he knows how? I remember back in the day, my guy back in the day, Barry Larkin and Eric Davis. And I remember when 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 Edie had those a lot of those injury problems, they told him to stop diving. Really? Like, are you going to ask Eric Davis not to start being Eric Davis and run around center field and diving and making those, you know, scale in the wall to make those plays? Heck no. I mean, so at the end of the day, all of that makes a boatload of sense. But when it comes down to it and it's real out there, man, he's going to, he's going to die for that ball in the hole. He's going to die for that ball in the middle. So, you know, hopefully for baseball fans, you got both guys like Bogarts and you got guys like Buxton and they just stay on the field and they stay healthy because they're so good and they're so dynamic. So, I, I understand it, and it makes sense as far as preparation goes. Maybe he doesn't do it in spring training, maybe. But you know, come April one, man, it's on.
0: It's Xander, it's Julio Rodriguez, it's Riley Green, it's a whole bunch of young players to talk about. Brandon Crawford is the one guy who said, and this was, I mean, by the point at which he said this, he was you know t- thirty two, thirty three years old. Like mm-hmm. he realized there had come a point where he had to. Change things a little bit if he was going to keep playing because he, his body had taken a lot of wear and tear. But I imagine for the younger guys, it's a little bit of a different world because you're you're you know you still you're still feeling really good.
2: No question, no question, and it's one of those things where. And, and here's the thing too, one thing, and I don't know if Brandon touched on it or not, but at 32 you're you know, 32, 33, your mind still works. It, it's like you have the the physical arc of your career and the mental arc of your career, and you're able to see things happening in a game, but then your body's just not able to do the same things that you could at 26, 27 years old. And that happens to every athlete. So there's definitely adjustments that have to get made as you age. Sometimes it's really difficult to do. And, and, and one little short little anecdote, I remember one year when I was in LA and I was with the angels, of course, and, and Mike's kind of stopped running. Mike Trout that is, stopped running, he stopped stealing as many bags. And I, I'm not all I know is I think it was suggested to him that all the stolen bases were going to provide a boatload of wear and tear on his body. And the next year, it really bothered him. So he went back to stealing bags. And I think he got, I don't know, you know, 30 or so like he was capable of doing at that point in his career. So he's going to be who he is. you know. But, yeah, you, you certainly do have to make adjustments as you get older.
0: This wraps up the SIS Baseball Podcast. For Marquise Grissom, Tyrone Brooks, and Matt Tavares, along with Bobby Scales and our producer, Justin Stein, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'm Mark Simon. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.